Welcome to The Steady Investor with Mark Vickery and Mitch Zacks. In our program today, we'll help you get started or continue to build your nest egg with some of the best practices for retirement planning. It's time to start right now. Here are your hosts, Mitch Zacks and Mark Vickery. Yes, welcome again, listeners of VoiceAmerica.com's business channel. You're listening to The Steady Investor, which is sponsored by Zacks Investment Management. I'm your co-host, Mark Vickery, and I'm joined today by the other co-host of The Steady Investor, Mitch Zacks, the Portfolio Manager and Founding Principal at Zacks Investment Management. Good morning, Mitch. Good morning, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm sorry I wasn't with you last week, but uh, I trust It was Labor you. Day. You get, you get, get I, some time I, I, off, I hopefully, it. yes? Thank you, thank you so much for that. Okay. I want to say before we started, though, to people who are listening to this show, The Steady Investor, uh, you can call into this program directly, and you can speak, speak with Mitch or myself, and you call this number to do so, 866 472 Five seven nine zero, and that way we'll just patch you in live to our podcast. And we're also broadcasting live at uh, One South Wacker. That's right. At the mezzanine level. So if anyone wants to come by, we're at a booth here. Uh, it's a wave. But we'd be very happy to say hello. Sure. There's plenty of people passing by. Too. Yes. It's, a, it's, a, it's a quite lively. Uh, yeah, no, it's a nice place to broadcast from. Absolutely. And downtown Chicago. Absolutely. Uh, I'd like to talk about uh, current events first, Mitch, before we get into kind of the, the, the nitty grit of Zach's investment management and the portfolio management that you do. Um, the president of the European Central Bank, Mario okay. Draghi, uh, spoke today during the morning hours here in the U.S., uh, basically did not make any adjustment to the ECB interest rate. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think that was a surprise, but is there any immediate response you have to something like the, that? The interesting thing about Draghi is that there's a group of people who were educated under Fisher, who is now the second in command of the uh, U.S. Federal Reserve Bank. Okay. Uh, and uh, Bernanke was one of them. Draghi was another person educated under him. There's a third central banker in another country that was educated under them. Talk about Stanley uh, Fisher. Stanley Fisher. Right. Yeah, right. And they were all, they all have the same view of the world. So the entire view is completely the same, which is that monetary policy uh, can have real effect on the economy uh, by effectively lowering interest rates. Right. And by keeping rates low. So the issue is that you have the heads of several of these central banks all believing the exact same thing and all attacking the uh, problem of low GDP growth the same way by trying to keep interest rates lower for longer than they have. And uh, the net result is, is it's got to be a, a somewhat of a benefit for the market uh, because the lower that foreign countries and large foreign blocks like the European Union uh, push interest rates, the harder it is going to be for the Federal Reserve uh, to do more than one interest rate hike uh, this year. And the reason is that if you have the European uh, Central Bank uh, keeping rates extremely low, and the U.S. Federal Reserve Bank is raising rates, the dollar, the U.S. dollar, people are going to want to hold dollars because they have higher interest rates. The dollar is going to appreciate and it's going to put downward pressure on U.S. multinational exports. Okay. So it's going to put downward pressure on GDP. So it's like the lower you put the interest rate, yes, you try and spur uh, bank lending in the country, but you're also trying uh, to effectively grab exports from other countries. But if every country is doing the same thing at the same time, no country can grab exports from another country, and it becomes like a, a zero. No one is made better off. So the so the issue is you you have everyone trying to address the issue the same way, and the Europeans have some real issues in that they can't coordinate fiscal policy, 
and their monetary policy needs, uh, even though it's a central bank, it needs approval from all these different uh, factions within the European Union. Uh, but the net result is, is it's got to be uh, positive uh, for U.S. equities. Investors are almost giving up on developed market equities. Emerging markets have done extremely well this year. Mm -hmm. uh, the EEM ETF has gone up uh, much higher than the EFA uh, ETF. And the reason is just you're just not seeing the growth in terms of earnings growth uh, in the uh, European Union. And that hel also helps explain why with Brexit, you had the, uh, in the UK wanting to leave the European Union because they're saying they're being tied to this entity that's not growing. And you, you do have this issue of dominoes falling and Brexit occurring and another country leaving. And then another thing with Greece happens and people just say, listen, they're better off controlling their own destiny and having their own central bank, uh, you know, print some more money and cause inflation to occur, which is absolutely not occurring with the European Union. Yeah. To what, uh, to your point, uh, we haven't seen a lot of drama, uh, no. post Brexit at all, which no. I think is surprising to a lot. of. I investors. think it's, it's the, it's, the, Euro, the people who run the European Union need to keep everything at a very, very low level. Right. You also have to understand that the European Union Central Bank is really run uh, by Germany, which has a history of really having a negative effect of inflation. And so they're always focused, completely focused on uh, not causing inflation to occur. So for the central, the European Central Bank to be this dovish, Right. Right. With this historical outlook of very, very anti-inflation because of the effects of hyperinflation uh, during World War Two, you know, sort of creating the German mindset uh, in terms of uh, monetary policy for the next 50 years, I think is, is, is very telling that you really are going to see them maintain this posture for a longer period of time than people are expecting. And they really are not seeing inflation and they really are not seeing growth. The U.S. is seeing slight inflation. The U.S. is seeing slight growth. So this will likely accelerate capital movement uh, to the U.S. If you're a uh, large pension fund and you can determine where you put your assets, either in the U.S. or internationally, uh, you're going to be hard pressed to say we want to increase uh, you know, developed market international exposure with the European Union, essentially saying we're going to uh, keep rates low. With the Federal Reserve Bank of the U.S. saying they're keeping rates high, they're doing this because they're expecting earnings to grow. They're expecting the GDP to continue to grow. Right, right. Uh, well, to that end also, uh, we in the U.S. are a little bit further ahead in our economic development than the ECB is uh, for, for Europe. And one uh, example of that is in the quantitative easing program. We're, we've been done with yeah. that for over right. a year, I believe. It's, that's still in question whether or not go, they're going to adjust that in October. They didn't uh, make any move in, moves uh, in this meeting today or in this announcement. But uh, they're looking toward, is there going to be additional QE uh, for, the, for the European Union? A lot of this can be analyzed if you take a step back and you think of it as one monstrous, or monstrous might be the wrong word, but one entity. And this entity is the European Union. And what does the European Union want to prevent from happening? They want to prevent other countries from leaving the European Union. Because if the other countries leave the European Union, there is no European Union. That's right. How do you prevent the other countries from leaving the European Union? You make sure the people in these countries have jobs. You make sure their economies are growing. How do you do that? You overstimulate the economy until you get some degree of inflation. So what's happening is that they're... The European Union as an entity is acting to prevent or deter 
Brexit from happening again with every other country. Because if you get another major country leaving the European Union, it's no longer a European Union, it's a German uh, uh, monetary union. And right. so they're going to be biased towards always pushing towards more growth, more inflation, lower unemployment. What causes the people to get worked up is when they don't have jobs. And what causes them not to have jobs is to have an economy that's sluggish. So they're throwing everything they can to get the economy growing for, in terms of the European economy, because I don't want to say it's an existential threat uh, to the European Union, but it is a threat that could materialize. And so I expect the European Union to be much more dovish for much, much longer than most people are expecting. And I think this is going to just continue to move assets into the uh, U.S. equities. The issue is, with every central bank having the same philosophy, is that going to be effective? And the answer is it's not. And, so far, and, it hasn't really and, been. And, and you have to say that longer term, you're going to have to see some sort of uptick in inflation. Right. I mean, we saw the eurozone growth slowed to 0.3% in the second quarter, and that's down a couple ticks from the first quarter. Um, so we're not really seeing a lot of uh, real advancement in the uh, in the European economy uh, based on this. It, the European economy is less able to adjust to technological change than the U.S. economy. There are more labor frictions in Europe than there are in the U.S. Because they're different nations. They're different nations. Why. They speak different things. They have different uh, labor laws. Unions are much stronger. Uh, it's much, much harder for uh, a, you know Uber to dominate Europe that is for it to very quickly uh, displace workers in the U.S. The result of this is it's hard for their economy to adjust. It's harder for European economies to adjust to technological change. I think that technological change is what's driving uh, the lower uh, the, the lower labor participation rate. So generally speaking, it's it's hard to look. If you have one group, if in the U.S., you have interest rates being uh, raised by the central bank. In Europe, you have quantitative easing still being done and interest rates not being raised. It's a no-brainer. You go to where the interest rates are being raised because they're not being raised in a vacuum. They're being raised because there's an expectation of economic growth materializing. Right. And you mentioned Germany being uh, at basically the helm of, of the ECB in, in some ways as yeah. far as uh, how, it can, how it can interact. And it still has negative interest rates. On it still has, it has negative interest rates. So it's like at, at some point in time, you have to say that that's not sustainable. But the fact that they're not raising interest rates when they have negative interest rates on their sovereign debt that's the debt that's uh, paid to the government, I think is not uh, positive for the economy. For the I, don't, I, I, I don't think the European Union, I think there are going to be some issues in Europe. I think there's a percentage chance you see a, uh, I don't want to say dis disintegration of the euro, but there, it's there. Uh, uh, you know, a, a, a student investor would say, well, the likelihood is very low and the market is pricing in that likelihood. So when that likelihood doesn't materialize, you should see a bump up in European equity values. Okay. Uh, but I would tend to play it more cautiously and tend to underweight European equities relative to U.S. equities at this point. Which is what you said for the past few weeks. Yeah, I, 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 I've, been, I've been fairly consistent with that over long periods of time. Um, if you believe that technological growth is going to drive most GDP growth, the U.S. is where you want to be. Right. If you're listening to The Steady Investor right now, by the way, you can call into this program and you can speak with Mitch Sachs directly by calling 866-472-5790. We'll patch you right in live to our podcast. Also, uh, if you'd like to contact a representative at Zach's Investment Management, here's another number to call, 800-249-2934. And you can discuss managing your retirement assets uh, or find out more information by emailing us at ziminfo at zax.com. And the website is also zimwealth, that's Z-I-M for Zach's Investment Management, wealth 
Um, okay, what else is going on in the market? We had another uh, jobless claims uh, yawner. I mean, two hundred and fifty-nine, a little weaker, thousand, yeah. a little lower than the a little 4, weaker than weaker, expected, uh, but within the range. I within think it's sixty, right? Uh, it's a weird environment in the U.S. where weaker numbers are better. Uh, because weaker numbers mean that the uh, Federal Reserve is going to stay low for longer. So, so eventually, when you when you see a strong number, you're going to see the market trade off a little bit. But in the, for the long term, you do want to see a stronger number because you do want to see economic growth happening. You're, you, I mean, if you look at U.S. equities, I think you have like maybe about a two percent dividend yield, and you have two and a half to three percent stock bikes, uh, stock uh, buybacks occurring. Okay. So that's driving uh, returns. You're seeing the shares outstanding. In aggregate, uh, decreasing by you know two to three percent uh, per year, and you're seeing uh, cash payouts of two to three percent. Um, it's very good to be an investor. It's 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 you just need to see economic growth really start to materialize. Okay, and then last week they did come out with the the, the non-farm payroll report from the Bureau of Labor right. Statistics. Again, we're under five percent for unemployment, but the Jolts uh, report that came out just yesterday uh, suggested that there's upwards of 6 million open jobs in the U.S. If we're at or near full employment, how does that job exactly? Is this a part-term uh, employment it's, versus it's, full-term it's full-time employment? It's very important. I've, I've spent a lot of time studying how macroeconomic data affects the stock market. And what you find is not what you would think you would find. What you would expect to find is when you look at a variable like GDP growth and you plot it on the x-axis, you say, what was the GDP growth for the year and what was the return of the stock market on the y-axis for that year? You'd expect as GDP growth goes up, the stock market return goes up. And it's it's actually uh, not that relationship. There's a very weak relationship. And the reason is that the market is not responding to GDP growth. The market is responding to what is expected to happen in terms of GDP growth and what actually happens. So if they expect low growth, like if people are actually expecting and the market is beginning to expect 1% GDP growth mm-hmm. and GDP growth comes in at 1.8%, the market's going to likely trade up because earnings expectation, earnings that materialize are going to be greater than expectations. So if you think about like 2009, 2010, you're looking at periods when you, you did not have very, very good GDP growth at all. Right. And you had a very, very strong market. Well, why was that? It, it wasn't that uh, you know anything good was happening in terms of the economic growth, in terms of the outlook, in terms of the stability of, of financial companies in 2009. It was that the expectations going into 2009 were so dire right. that when the worst case scenario didn't materialize, you saw a rebound. You saw a bit up. And it's again, it's the, the old <clears throat> wisdom that the markets climb a wall of worry because the more there is negative sentiment out there, the easier it is to surprise uh, to the upside. That's true. So what what I believe we, we could see very conceivably happen is the economic data start to surprise a little bit to the upside, see earnings start to take off, see interest rates remain relatively low, and that would push equities a, a little bit higher effectively. Okay. Very, very interesting. Uh, one more thing I wanted to get to. Uh I mean, there is a danger scenario here, which I don't want to get people uh, too worked up about. And the danger scenario is that we start to see interest rates rise. The Federal Reserve raises rates. Mm -hmm. Their timing is completely off because they've stutter-stepped quarter after quarter after quarter. Right. Uh, The weaker jobs numbers are the beginning of a recession. And we start to see a recession at the same time interest rates are rising. 
And if that case happens, you're going to see a, a very, very strong uh, sell-off in equities. I don't think that case has happened. It doesn't happen very often. And I don't expect the Federal Reserve to really start raising interest rates very dramatically. And I don't expect an economic recession or recessionary forces to occur. What I really expect is that economic growth to materialize, to come in slightly better than expected, to interest rates rise slightly higher than expected, okay. and for the net effect to be a, a net positive uh, for the U.S. equity market. All right. And when they do raise, when the Fed does raise, it's only a quarter point here or there, though. So, I mean, are we really talking about something that would have such a catastrophic it's, negative it's, it's effect? It's the signaling effect of the Federal Reserve and what they're raising says about what they're going to do next time. So it's not, no, it, it's the same way that an earnings report for a company, it's yes, they missed it by a couple pennies. It's what does that tell about all the future earnings that that company is going to generate? If the growth company is suddenly missing earnings expectations, it's telling you that in the future they're not going to grow earnings as uh, fast as, as what investors are anticipating. So again, the game, the game is all about expectations mm -hmm. and how expectations are met. The expectations are built into stock prices. If the expectations are exceeded, stock prices go up. If the expectations are missed, stock prices go down. Very good. Let's take a break right here. Uh, you're listening to The Steady Investor on voiceamerica.com's business channel. Uh, we're sponsored by Zacks Investment Management, and I'm Mark Vickery with Mitch Zacks. We'll be right back after this word. Thank you. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The Steady Investor Show is brought to you by Zacks Investment Management, a wealth management boutique formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars for thousands of customers. At Zacks, we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation. Zacks focuses on providing solutions and listening to our clients' needs. With trust in the financial industry at an all-time low, we find this focus to be a key differentiator for our firm. We're based in Chicago and have a team of advisor representatives located across the country to help you with your retirement planning. Whether you need help with financial planning or looking for a second opinion on your retirement plan, give us a call at 800-245-2934. Or to learn more, go to ZimWealth.com. Again, that number is 800-245-2934 or go to ZimWealth.com. Fast performance is no guarantee of future results. Potential for loss exists in any investment. Material is for informational purposes only. It is not investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. A recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. No advice is given about a strategy's suitability for a particular investor. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. listening to The Steady Investor. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to cgaitan at zax.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, listeners of VoiceAmerica.com's business channel. This is The Steady Investor. I'm Mark Vickery, joined by Mitch Sachs, Portfolio Manager and Founding Principal at Sachs Investment Management, which sponsors this program. Uh, Mitch, before we go on to the five biggest fears in today's markets, which I do want to talk about, uh, uh, Apple just had its uh, annual September hardware event. Right. And I don't really want to get too much in the weeds here, but I do want to talk a little bit about how one product, let's say the iPhone, yeah. from one company, Apple, 
biggest company in the world, arguably. How it can have such an impa impact on the market and whether or not that's something that investors or portfolio managers tend to consider when it comes to maybe some of the bigger companies, sure. or is this kind of an anomaly in a general sense? No, the, the issue with Apple and portfolio managers is that traditionally hardware providers, and especially hardware providers to, the person, uh, to, to consumers, have a bad track record over long periods of time. So, so they because they come out with a product, the margins on the product are high, the growth is high, uh, it attracts competitors, and the margins go zero, and eventually it's commoditized. Uh, think of Dell. Dell comes out with personal computers, mm -hmm. they're selling them to individuals, Gateway comes out, IBM is producing it, and fast forward 30 years, and it's a completely commoditized business, where China has now bought IBM's personal computer manufacturing company, rebranded it, and is producing them at the absolute cheapest. Dell's going private. Right, 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 right. So any gadget, or gadget is the wrong word, any personal computer hardware has this trend over time, okay. is that there's a period of growth, the growth attracts competitors, they're able to create a competing hardware product at low, lower cost, margins get compressed, and then everyone goes in. And it's say Apple goes out there, they win the market, Samsung comes in, Android phones come in, and again, you're having downward pressure. So what Apple has to do is continually innovate to justify the margins. And if you look at the level of innovation that's occurring, it's, it's amazing, but it is the magnitude of the innovation from the last innovation is decreasing. So the difference between, I don't know which version of the iPhone we're in, and the last version right. is lower, seven, seven, is seven and six is lower than uh, one to three. So okay. the, 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 the innovations that are occurring are decreasing. Right. And that's going to have to cause margin compression to occur. So with Apple, everyone looks at it and says, well, this is a very inexpensive stock from a PE multiple. Look at the massive growth. Look at the massive cash hoard they have. But what they're not seeing is that there's a fundamental difference between a hardware company and a software company. Mm. Microsoft doesn't get the fee compression because they have this sort of uh, monopolistic uh, switching cost that causes everyone to exchange files on a Microsoft operating system and they have to upgrade and et cetera, et cetera. Apple is trying to create these switching costs with things they're doing in their app store, with trying to get people to buy all their music on right. the iPhone, to try and get the iPhone to be the sort of centralized thing. But if you look at what they're doing, is they're starting to add apps built in that are then competing with things like Snapchat and things like that. And the reason this is happening is because the fundamental hardware business, the level of innovation is decreasing over time. So I don't expect the large, and, and then their new things don't, so, so essentially what's happening is that Apple, because of its very large market cap, is a huge portion of the Russell 1000 growth index. Right. And in our large cap growth, we have it as a large portion, but we have it underweighted relative to the benchmark. So relative to the Russell 1000 growth benchmark, we're slightly underweighted Apple uh, because of this. So we still like Apple, we still think it's going to go, uh, but I, I'm not quite sure you want to weight Apple at the same level it's at in the Russell 1000 growth benchmark, which is substantially higher than where it is in the S&P 500, sure. uh, several percentage points. Or even in the Dow. I mean, it's or like even the Dow, it's, it, it, it's an interesting company, but it seems to be attracting a very, very large amount of competition. 
Right. And that large competition is going to put downward pressure on Mars. It's, it's coming from Samsung. It's coming from Chinese producers. And eventually, over time, if they can catch up with the level of innovation that's occurring, yeah, the margins are going to go to kaput. And, right. and, and, you, and that's the sort of the danger with Apple. And the problem is this has happened with every single personal technology item. It's produced. It's an innovation. Uh, competitors come in and eventually the margins go to zero and it becomes a commoditized product. The same way personal computers uh, became a commoditized product. So you so see this as an inevitable thing. It, it's inevitable. And that's why the P multiple is, is low. So if they're somehow able to create a switching uh, cost that is high enough that all the Apple users absolutely have to upgrade to Apple when the next product becomes, when the Samsung product becomes cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, mm. uh, it's not going to, it's not going to sustain itself, which it may happen. They may be very successful in getting an app or getting some sort of intercommunication activity with the iPhone that is unique to the iPhone and everyone is working on that and they're unable to switch to another competing device. Uh, but the bet in the marketplace is that it's going to uh, play out like Dell over the same period of time. Innovation, uh, high margins, a uh, premium, <coughs> premium product, but eventually have that margin uh, decrease over time. So it's a, it's a very interesting stock. There's a lot of controversy about it. I'm, I would I would say that it's a good stock to own. You just don't want to own it in super high percentages that might be in the benchmark. And don't particularly look at it like you would have looked at it five or ten years ago when the iPhone was the only smartphone. Right. So it's a quite a different scenario right. than it is today. Okay, very good. Um, and I think, oh, I know I wanted to talk about. Before I do, I wanted to say if you'd like to call into this program to speak with Mitch Zacks, you can call 866 472 Five seven nine zero, and we'll patch you in live to our podcast today. Um, also, uh, to contact a representative at Zach's Investment Management, call 800-249-2934. Uh, you can discuss managing your retirement assets, and you can also find out more information by emailing ziminfo at zax.com and visit zimwealth.com, which is the website, Z-I-M for Zach's Investment Management, wealth.com. Okay, the five biggest fears in today's market, Mitch. Um, okay, that sounds exciting. The, well, the right. fears are always exciting. People are always more in interested way. on the fears than the positive. Well, no, one, I mean, no one listens to someone when they say the market's likely going to increase at a steady rate over the next 10 years. If you ignore all the fears, uh, you'll do well. But when, yeah. as soon as you say, you know, Brexit, uh, people perk up. So let's let's okay. go through the, <laughs> let's, like let's the, have the, they, uh, they like the fears. five so biggest fears. It's going on a roller it's, coaster. It's just how people work. It has nothing to do with, okay, but let's go right, ahead. Sure. Okay. Well, here, let me start with a quote from you on this, uh, okay. on this article. If there's one thing the market and market participants lack most today, it's confidence. Yes. What do you mean by that? Uh, it's the most hated bull market that I can remember in my investing history. Usually in a bull market, people become excited about the market, they become excited about the economy, there starts to be an element or group of stocks where uh, belief is suspended, earnings stop to be important, and they say the future is XYZ, the restaurant, the leasing business, the dot-com companies, and the P multiples of that group start to expand and expand and expand mm -hmm. uh, because it has to take in all the extra capital that's flowing into the market. In this instance, the aggregate shares outstanding is decreasing. IPO activity is not picking up. True. And investors are running around not wanting to over allocate to equities. 
all of this, I think, in aggregate is relatively positive uh, for the market and is an indication that the bull market likely has some room to run. Perhaps. Meaning you're not expecting any kind of bubble scenario the, based on this. See, you have to put yourself back in, uh, in, in 1999 in these periods when there were, there were actual bubbles occurring and no one was saying, are you worried about a bubble? It wasn't that's, on people. That's the time to it worry. It was on people's minds. When everyone is saying, "Are you worried about a bubble?" That's an indication you have you have uh, you have room potentially to the upside. The, the where the place I'm worried about overvaluation is not the equity markets. It really is the fixed income markets. Okay. It really is you know how can you buy German bonds with the negative yield and not expect that yield to go from a negative uh, level to some positive level over the next couple of years and have you lose money on that investment. Okay, so with the five biggest fears in today's market, number one, you have down here <coughs> election fears. Obviously, we've got a, a couple months away from a, from a major general election here in the US. Uh, but you mentioned in the last 22 election years, which is obviously going right. back 88 years, there have only been four where the S&P 500 in index finished negative for the year. One of those was in 2008 when the, general, when the uh, Great Recession was happening. One was when the Great Depression was happening, and the other two uh, in the middle, I guess, uh, 2000. Right. So the Bush versus Gore, I know about. Roosevelt versus Wilkie. Wilkie. You, I mean, you wrote something on Alexander Hamilton. Do you do That's know, right, but that's, this is a little this bit This is a little bit different period. time period. It's like <laughs> well, I think, years. well, I think there was something with Roosevelt there, that, where they kind of adjusted economic policy right. before the Great Depression had quite right. ended. They, they tried their hand at it. It right. wasn't in a new deal kind of, and it dumped everything. A little that's bit. A, okay. I don't put a lot of uh, faith in the statistic. The last 22 election years, four years, last 80 years, how much uh, faith do I put in something that happened in 1932 in, uh, you know, 80, 60 years ago? Right. I would say, look, the last 20 years, last 30 years, and generally speaking, what happens in election years is the party in powers, party in power tries to stimulate the economy by increasing, uh, by adjusting spending. So the spending hits before the election occurs uh, to try and get votes effectively. Okay. Um, it is it is there, it is not that dramatic. What really will happen, and uh, you know, some people at Schwab were asking about this, is that if there is gridlock in Washington, it, it will uh, be good for the market. So if you don't have agreement, whatever that agreement is, if okay. the people running the Congress or the party running the Congress is not the same party as the president and is not the same party as the Senate, people are the, the market is generally happy. Well, that's what we have right now. So we have massive gridlock. Yeah. Gerrymandering is causing gridlock to increase and increase and increase over time. And so as a result, I, I'm not that concerned uh, about the election because I'm fairly certain we're going to have gridlock uh, going forward. And if we have gridlock going forward, it's generally good for the market. And it's something we can expect. And, and the, 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 the Federal Reserve has a greater the, impact on the market. The, the election has all this psychological impact, uh, but the Federal Reserve has a greater direct effect on the market through its control of interest rates. Okay. And I expect the election to keep the Federal Reserve on the sideline until after the election. I think that we, we, last uh, week we talked, the election is November 8th. That's right. And the Federal Reserve meeting is November 2nd or 4th? Oh, I think 2nd. Okay. I'm not positive, but it's. I think it's November 2nd. A week before the election, they're not going to say, okay, we haven't raised interest rates in quite some time. Let's raise it now. Right before the election. So they're going to raise it. I think the other op option, I think, is, uh, I, I think it's September. 
I think it's September, November, December. I'm not positive. Okay. And then uh, I, I don't think they're going to raise it in September for the same reason. So I expect right. the raise to occur after the election in December uh, when uh, because they don't want to get involved with it. Assuming there's not any extra turmoil. Yes, extra turmoil or anything like that. And extra turmoil is usually to the downside, not to the upside. Right. It usually doesn't – there's not usually extra turmoil. And they're like, well, we've got to raise the rates sooner than – it's usually – extra turmoil and they say, well, we've got to keep them lower because X, Y, Z is happening. This unexpected great stuff. The the unexpected things are generally to the downside, not to the, oh my goodness, something happened in September and we have massive inflation. Right, it's 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 less likely. I, I, I'm it's much less likely to materialize. Even when it turns out to be nothing that big of a deal, but when it like Brexit, when because it happens, the inflation comes on gradually, and the bad things happen suddenly, effectively. Right. Okay, but you do mention that history tells us the year following an election year is the weakest for stock market performance. Do you, how much do you uh, subscribe? I don't. To that? I the same way I was saying, you can't. You have 22 data points over an 80 year period. You don't have enough data to make it very statistically significant. Calendar anomalies are the weakest anomalies I've studied. So the anomalies that say uh, January is the best month, the anomaly that says uh, Friday is the best day to invest, the anomaly that says the year of the election is the best, the year after the election is the worst. Sell and go away. Sell and go away. Buy on the first day of the month uh, because that's when the majority of the returns for the month occur. All of these sound very exciting to people because they can readily understand it. Mm-hmm. And statistically, they're not that valid because you don't have enough data and the standard deviation is, is so high. Right. And so generally speaking, calendar anomalies should be avoided. You should not be buying the market because it's an election year. You shouldn't be selling the market because it's a year after the election year. Right. Okay. You should, well, you should be ignoring the election is what I basically think. Gotcha. So let's move on to the second biggest fear in today's markets, and that is the monetary policy trap. This okay. one you do give a little bit more validity to. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. How so? Uh, there, there's just from a common sense standpoint, what is going on with zero interest rates is they are borrowing growth from the future to help the present. Okay. And there's got to be a limit to what to how this can can effectively uh, do. And the concern is that what if you think of it as like they have some ability to affect the market, they're pushing that, they're firing their, their, their ammo now, and if something happens in the future and they have to fire it, they're out of ammo. Okay. And that's the danger. Now, if you talk to people at the Federal Reserve, what they will say is, you, Mitch, you don't understand. We have all these different policy uh, abilities that that we haven't uh, taken out of the box yet. Mm -hmm. We can start buying corporate bonds. We can start buying these bonds. We can engage in quantitative easing. We can go buy stocks if we really need to, et cetera, et cetera. And if push came to shove, we would do that. But generally speaking, I would say this is the greatest risk to the market is that the Federal Reserves of the world, the central banks of the world, uh, keep interest rates too long uh, too low for too long, market goes up much higher. When the bad thing happens, they have no way to affect it. Right. And, and, and they the, have no way to fight it, okay? Because they're out, they've already kept interest rates. They, they can't lower interest rates any lower. You can't keep interest rates. You, you can't go from 25, you can go from 25 to zero. You can't, it's hard to go from zero to negative 25 or negative 50. And so this, this, is, this is a real worry in the market, but it's like worrying about the outlier event. It's always a worry there. And what I think is, as a result of the policies, the next recession is going to be much worse than the last one. Okay. Not, I shouldn't say the last one. It's going to be much worse than the average recession we've seen. Okay. 
uh, based on based uh, on the the inability of the Federal Reserve to stimulate the economy. All right, and as you were saying in the first, but I don't, segment, I don't see, the, I don't see the, I don't see the uh, recession materializing in the next year or year and a half or two years. But when it does, it's going to be exacerbated. Well, it will come at some point in the next five or seven years, and it will be, it will be a little bit worse than what it has been historically. But it won't be as bad as the absolute last one that occurred in 08, which uh, came because of the uh, the credit crisis. And I was just going to mention that it goes back to something you said in the first segment, which is that all the different uh, everyone's trying to address these uh, economic problems across the globe the same, very same way. Because they've all been trained at, at, they've at MIT. The they've all been trained at the, uh, the, the salt water where they, they believe it, they didn't go to University of Chicago, which are the monetarists, which believe... Which you do. You, well, right, which you believe that you, you don't have an ability to truly... The, the effect of monetary policy on the economy is muted. Okay, very good. With that, we're going to take another break. Uh, thanks for listening to The Steady Investor on uh, voiceamerica.com's business channel. We'll be right back. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. The Steady Investor Show is brought to you by Zach's Investment Management, a wealth management boutique formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars for thousands of customers. At Zach's, we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation. Zax focuses on providing solutions and listening to our clients' needs. With trust in the financial industry at an all-time low, we find this focus to be a key differentiator for our firm. We're based in Chicago and have a team of advisor representatives located across the country to help you with your retirement planning. Whether you need help with financial planning or looking for a second opinion on your retirement plan, give us a call at 800-245-2934. Or to learn more, go to ZimWealth.com. Again, that number is 800-245-2934. Or go to ZimWealth.com. Fast performance is no guarantee of future results. Potential for loss exists in any investment. Material is for informational purposes only. It is not investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. A recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. No advice is given about a strategy's suitability for a particular investor. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to The Steady Investor. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to cgaitan at zax.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zax Investment Management. I'm Mark Vickery, joined by Mitch Zaks, Portfolio Manager and Founding Principal at Zax Investment Management. Um, Mitch, we were in the middle of talking about the five biggest fears in today's market. Got it. And we have gotten to number three. So let's talk about it. Uh, the geopolitical threat. Okay. It doesn't seem like there's a lot you can do about it, but why is that uh, one of the biggest threats to the market? There, if you look and you try and analyze when wars occur, they occur more as the level of trade actually increases. Okay. So the more isolationist countries are, the less likely wars occur. World War huh. I occurred because of a massive increase in uh, global trade. So as the global trade occurs, the interconnectedness of the company of the country's interests start to get all inter intertwined. All right. And so there is a worry, I think, of an increase in geopolitical risk. I don't think there's any way you can 
uh, trade it. I don't think there's any way you can effectively predict it. Uh, but I think that's a risk. But I put it on sort of the risks that are always there. And if you think about the uh, 20th century and the 21st century, there was a lot of geopolitical activity sure. over the last 30 years. And over the last 50 years, massive this war, that war, Vietnam, Korean, all these wars, uh, you know, Gulf War, Gulf War One, Gulf War II. Uh, and all these wars, we've had clients call us up, you know, I'm panicked. I'm, I'm they're looking at the uh, CNN and XYZ is happening and it's da da da. And the correct course of action is to ignore it. And again, the reason you ignore it is because throughout all this geopolitical turmoil, the market has uh, continued to go up. So I would say the geopolitical turmoil is part of just what's part of our society, our world, and you 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 cannot uh, try and avoid it. And the market is able to go up in spite of it over long periods of time. If you actually look at the effect of geopolitical events, um, it's I, I hate to say this, but it's like the old economic adage that if you go and you break everyone's window in a town, mm -hmm. what happens is GDP increases because everyone has to go out and buy a new window. So what happens during periods of the, the geopolitical turmoil is uh, government spending tends to increase, right. employment tends to increase, and it tends to be net positive uh, for earnings, which is not the best thing. Uh, but that could be why when you have these geopolitical events, the market doesn't uh, go, 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 go crazy. And the reason is all the geopolitical events involve the U.S. gearing up, increasing spending, but they don't really have a huge effect on the U.S. Uh, society. They happen right. in other places. And so that's the key issue. Uh, but generally speaking, it is a concern. I would put there up there with number two, which is the monetary policy trap, as the two real fears on the on, on the uh, that that people are concerned about. Yeah. What well, one thing you mentioned here though is apart from the September 11th attacks, there hasn't been a, a terrorist attack that's coincided with. Well, and the terrorist attacks I think right. are what we're kind of mostly talking around here uh, that has coincided with or caused a bear market, right? So of all these different things that have happened in Paris and elsewhere, we haven't really seen uh, a, a real downturn. That's true, and I don't expect it. Uh, it you see a substitution effect. So X, Y, Z happens, consumer behavior changes, mm -hmm. uh, they stop going here, they start going here because of this. Right. So it substitutes goods, but it doesn't change the aggregate level of good uh, of uh, sort of goods that are being bought. So the next one we have on the list is what? The China, China's yeah. economic, I'm just looking at the list. Sure, what, yeah, I was we, just going to get to We that. get through all, uh, China's economic hard landing. Right. What do you have to say about that? Uh, people have been expecting China's economic hard landing for quite some time. Uh, I think you're going to have to see GDP growth slow. Uh, you saw Japanese GDP growth uh, very, very high uh, around the, the late 1990s. Uh, people anticipated Japan would continue to grow and be, you know, uh, surpass the U.S. in terms of economic growth. That didn't happen. It, it did not happen, but there really was a, a straight, you know, they were buying uh, buildings in, uh, in midtown Manhattan. Their sure. movies were coming out about the Japanese, uh, you know, they had all these movies where they're buying American, they're buying American businesses, yeah. American Japanese culture, all this stuff. And uh, it never quite materialized. You can't, trees don't grow to the sky. China can't continue to grow at uh, over 6%. It's going to have to stop at some point, uh, but it's not gonna stop in the immediate future. Uh, I think you have a longer runway of that growth to occur. And I think it's going to be continually postponed by the Chinese government until it can't be anymore. So okay. it's going to, again, last longer for than people are expecting. 
and when it does stop, it's going to stop pretty, pretty, pretty suddenly, and it, there's going to be some effects on the, on the Chinese economy. We're not really seeing a hard landing though from the Chinese economy right no, now. No, because it's a managed economy. You're, you're not. They're not going to let a hard landing occur. Okay. They're going to change this, change that, move in this direction, change the exchange rate, try and force all the people to do this, cause value them their to do currency, this, which they value did the last currency. Year. There's twenty, there's ten things they're going to do uh, to prevent a hard landing from occurring, and that's why I don't think it's going to occur for a period of time that's longer than what people are expecting. But when it does occur, there's, there's, there's going to cause uh, some issues. You have some issues in China uh, between the internal groups uh, that, that are not on the coast and the coast groups, and the people on the coast are doing much better than the people in the middle of the uh, country, mm-hmm. and it's causing some tension, and they're trying to prevent that from occurring, all this stuff. But the Chinese economic hard landing I, don't, I, I will occur, but I don't think it's going to occur in the immediate future. Okay. Uh, so we're on the five biggest fears in today's markets. So okay. That, though. Uh, the, so let's go to the fifth one then. Uh, the bull market is too old. Now, can do bull markets have to necessarily die of old age? No. There, there's no this, – this fear along with the first fear are the uh, ones that should be discounted the most. The election fear and the bull market being too old. Uh, there's no correlation uh, between the length of the bull market – and the uh, and 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 ending. You have an average length of time. Think of it this way: you have a bull market as a chance of ending every month. That chance changes slightly over time, uh, but the fact it, it's independent of what's happened historically. So the fact that you, you the market, the fact that the stock market has gone up, mm-hmm. you would think, okay, let me just look and say, okay, if the stock market has gone up by X percent. What happens next? And if that if it's gone up by too much, it won't go up any further. And that's not the way that you statistically analyze it. Uh, stock market movements are independent over time, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and uh, recessions can't be uh, predicted. Uh, so if recessions can't be predicted and stock market movements are independent over time, the length of time is not a reasonable variable to try and determine whether the market is going to uh, go down. What's going to determine whether the market is going to go down is very simply. Do earnings come in greater or less than expected? Do interest rates rise higher or lower than expected? Okay. If interest rates rise higher than expected, the market's going to go down. Uh, if earnings come in less than expected, the market's going to go down. And it seems like we're ending an earnings <coughs> recession, an earnings recession for companies uh, as soon as and, maybe next quarter. So I mean, we're we're looking at we don't look at, you're not seeing that stress. I'm on. not seeing the earnings stress. I'm seeing it abate, and I'm seeing the chance of really high interest rates or you know, significantly rising interest rates in the U.S. Uh, being relatively low, especially with the news coming out about the European Central Bank uh, mm-hmm. and their actions today. Or inaction. Inaction, as it is. Okay. Yes. Um, if you'd like to contact a representative of Zach's Investment Management, by the way, you can call 800-249-2934, and you can discuss managing your retirement assets uh, or find out some more information by emailing us at ziminfo at zax.com. Also visit at the website at zimwealth.com. Um, speaking of retirement assets, um, there is another article uh, called "Does Retirement Scare You?" Uh, Mitch, I'm sure it doesn't scare you. Well, but I wanted to kind of touch on a concept couple of things. not working scares me. So I, <laughs> okay, I enjoy working. I, I, right. The, um, but uh, basically, that saving enough for retirement is the most common anxiety among a host of financial con- concerns for Americans, right? Uh, particularly millennials, and the, the citing here that. Millennials will need to work for seven more years and save twice as much to accumulate the same wealth as the earlier generation. Right. I don't know if that's our generation or maybe previous ones. That's according to a McKinsey report. Um, And also from that, um, the 30 years on equities and government bonds, uh, long-term averages are 
5% and 1.7%, not too bad, but projections for the next 20 years do not look as promising. So what do you say to people who are looking at the retirement uh, uh, possibilities the, the, and, and the, having a little bit of worry about it? This is probably, this, this report is available on our study investor uh, website. And what I like is these is on the second page, the chart there. And that's looking at the U.S. 10-year Treasury bond total return. Okay. And over the last 30 years, 1985 to 2014, uh, port's probably a year or two old, uh, you're looking at a 5% annualized rate of return. Uh, and there's no way you're going to generate a 5% annualized rate of return with U.S. 10-year Treasuries because rates are not going down right. anymore. So right. if rates can't go down, if they can't fall from double digits that they were in, in 1980 to 1.5%, 1.6% that they mm -hmm. are now, you're not going to see that that rate of return. So if an investor has a equity and debt mix, mm -hmm. and it's impossible for the debt to generate the rate of return that it has historically, their overall return has to be lower uh, going forward. Okay. And what I really think is likely, or the best course of action, is that the fixed income exposure should be reduced because I, I don't see how you're going to generate that level of return. And the equity exposure uh, should be increased. And the issue is a lot of the millennials, a lot of people who came of age through the 2008 crisis, mm -hmm. uh, that's their impression of what's what the stock market does on a regular basis. That it crashes terribly. It, it happens <laughs> once every 50 years. And it's likely not going to happen in their investment uh, lifetime. And okay. so what happens is there's underinvestment in equities uh, because of this. Right. And uh, I think what you're going to see over time is a movement away from all the alternative equity classes into equities uh, over time. So the movement away from hedge funds, away from alternative investments, away from fixed income, uh, high yield bonds, mm -hmm. things of that sort, it's going to move more into equities as uh, I, I, I can see a scenario where equities can generate a rate of return consistent with what they've done historically. Okay. And it's uh, and so does retirement scare people? It's it, 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 the issue is that you have to adjust for what you how the expected rates of return of the fixed income world and the equity world are going to conceivably change. The real adjustment is the low interest rate environment on the fixed income side is preventing is is, is mathematically preventing those bonds from generating a high rate of return going forward. The okay. only way. You could do it is through, you know, buying very, very poor credit quality bonds and hoping the credit quality improves. And statistically, that's a very poor thing to do. Is you, the, the, the poor credit quality bonds generally underperform the higher credit quality bonds, which okay. is the opposite of what you would expect. Mm -hmm. So in terms of retirement, it, it, it's going to require people to be psychologically stronger uh, to ignore the fluctuations they see in their retirement portfolio because they're going to have to over allocate to equities uh, to compensate for the loss of return on the fixed income side. Okay. The flip side of that is inflation is likely going to be lower. So that we, we saw that, for instance, the last 30 years, the US 10-year treasury bond total return is 5% on an annualized basis, mm -hmm. which is incredibly high given the standard deviation is not gonna be that, uh, but inflation during that period is probably a little bit higher than what we were gonna expect uh, substantially higher than what we're going to expect over the 30-year period. So you're going to see likely a period of low inflation, low interest rates, 
this is probably a good scenario uh, for equities relative to fixed income. People are going to have to start to over allocate to equities and bear the uh, fluctuations that they see in the equity uh, in the stock market. And when you say equities, you mean just stocks or ETFs? And I, other- I, 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 it doesn't matter if it's U.S. equities, international equities. Like I said, I prefer U.S. equities at this point in time. Right. Uh, but you, you're going to have to have overexposure to equities. Okay. Uh, and you said here, or, or I guess from the report, it says uh, it makes sense that the sooner you plan out your finances and portfolio diversi- diversification, the better chance you have of averting a hard landing through your retirement years. I mean, that makes it's, perfect it's, sense. Uh, time and compounding is what generates uh, wealth growth over time. Okay. It's not uh, that the person picked the best years to invest. It's the person invested, stayed invested over the longest longest period of time. If the uh, annualized rate of return of the market is 9%, if it's 7%, if it's 6% over that period of time, uh, the effect of an extra couple of years of that compounding is dramatic. And, and uh, that is really how wealth is generated. It's the compounding effect of geometric returns that generate uh, wealth over time, but it requires people to be in the market for long periods of time, not to try and time the market, right. and not to try and pull assets in and out of the market. And if you can do that psychologically, uh, the retirement should not be an issue. And going back to something you said a little bit earlier in this program, and that you have said uh, numerous times before, is that markets tend to go up gradually and when they fall, they fall pretty dramatically. They fall suddenly. So it's a, it's a payoff structure that is not uh, in keeping with people's psychology. That's right. That the, the payoffs are very, very incremental over time, and the losses are large and dramatic. And what happens is people say, well, what do I want to invest in a, in, in the equities when, okay, you know, the, it goes up a percent here, a half a percent here. I might make 6 to 9% over a year. This happens in weird days. Most of the days just... Uh, offset each other mm-hmm. and there's a few days of the year five or six days of the year where the entire market returns come from the, those days when the market went up one and a half percent or one percent and uh, then every five or seven years you have a massive pullback of 10 or 15 percent in right. the market that doesn't appeal to people and, <laughs> no, and, and, and the it. reason it and then because it doesn't appeal to people is why mm-hmm. investing in it over long periods of time uh, will, will, will generally work Fixed income appeals to people. There's, there's right. no. It's, it's a known. It, it's a known entity. It's right. very, very small movements. But it's like a frog being uh, heated in a pan. Uh, you, you get lower and lower interest rates relative to inflation. Inflation goes up and up and up. You get your money back from fixed income securities, and you go out to the world, and you wind up. You cannot buy what you uh, could buy at the beginning of investing, and right. that's happening nowhere clearer than in, in uh, sovereign bonds in Europe, where the interest rates are negative. And you're guaranteed to be able to buy less in the future. So it's it's again it's 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 not a rational way to be investing in a very very low interest rate environment unless right. you really expect some sort of uh, recessionary crazy economic right. cycle gonna, that we've never seen before, which is not going to happen. Terrific. We're going to okay. pick it up next week, Mitch Zacks. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Steady Investor on VoiceAmerica.com's Business Channel. We'll see you again next week. Thank you for tuning in this week. Be sure to join Mitch Zacks and Mark Vickery for another edition of The Steady Investor next Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you haven't started your retirement plan yet, what are you waiting for? 